I, I actually can prove the best dads are found here. In her book, The Toxic War of Masculinity, Nancy Piercy summarizes research that was done by Professor Brad Wilcox of the University of Virginia. Dr. Wilcox is the director of the National Marriage Project and has done research, and she writes in summary, uh, in summarizing about men, particularly dads, she writes this, research has found that church-going evangelical Protestant family men, okay, there's a lot of qualifiers, aren't there? Church-going evangelical Protestant family men are the least likely to yell at their children. They are the most likely to be warm and affectionate and to engage in one-on-one -on -one conversations with their children. They are 65% more likely to report praising and hugging their children, quote, very often, end quote, compared with their secular or religiously unaffiliated fathers. Church-going dads also spend more time in activities with their children, such as eating meals together, reading to them, playing games, coaching sports, attending school activities, and leading a church youth group. All told, religiously active fathers spend about three and a half more hours per week with their children compared to secular fathers. They are also the most likely to know where their adolescents are in the afternoons and the evenings. Professor Wilcox, in his own summary of his study, writes, when you look at measures of parental involvement, or excuse me, paternal involvement, that is the involvement of fathers, Things like reading to your children, volunteering for a Boy Scouts group, coaching sports, and so on. Active, conservative, Protestant, or evangelical fathers are the most involved fathers of any major religious group in the United States. Hey guys, isn't it nice to come and not get the sermon to beat you up? <laughs> Amen. Amen. Piercy actually goes on and she says, compared to secular men, devout Christian family men who attend church regularly are the more loving, the most, excuse me, are more loving husbands and more engaged fathers. They have the lowest rates of divorce, and astonishingly, the, they have lower rates of domestic violence of any major group in America. They're 35% less likely to divorce than their secular peers. They are two, at, at their domestic violence level, only 2.8% have domestic violence rates, the lowest of any group in the U.S. As I told Dion, as we, I was discussing this with her, I, I said, I, maybe I should entitle my sermon, You Don't Know How Good You've Got It. <laughs> but the reality is there's some bad news along with this as well. Here's the bad news. You can also find the worst dads here as well. They may be here as well. In the research, this is what Wilcox found about nominal Christian men. Research has found that nominal Christian men have the highest rates of divorce and domestic violence, even higher than secular men. They are 20% more likely to divorce, and 7.2% of them commit domestic violence which is the highest rate of any major group. It's interesting because Wilcox goes on and, and, summar, and Piercy summarizes, research has consistently shown that religious attendance is the most important predictor of marital stability. That is, if you go to a religious service. 
Those who attend religious services are about 30 to 50% less likely to divorce than those who do. So this is a more broad statement, not just Christian, but religiously affiliated men. And Wilcox says, compared to the average American family man, evangelical Protestant men who are married with children and attend church regularly spend, much, spend more time with their children than their spouses and their spouses. They also are more affectionate with their children and their spouses. They also have the lowest rate of domestic violence of any group in the United States. But, but did you notice the distinction in what I read to you? There's two very important words, devout and nominal. You see, in their study, the way they define, they define devout was men who went to church three or more times a month, that was defined as what devout was. And nominal was defined as those who went less than three times a month. That's why they can say at the end that one of the greatest predictors of marital stability is whether or not you are an active attender of church. Now, it's interesting because that is the external indicator. Are you somebody who is actively committed to evolve in a local body? You know, it's, it's actually nice to hear. How many of you heard the stat over the years that the divorce rate within the church is no different than in the society around us? Have you heard that stat before? Yeah. It's true, but the problem is it doesn't represent the details. Here's the good news. Committed followers of Christ who are actively involved in the body of Christ, what these studies show is that they are less likely to divorce, they are less likely to commit domestic violence, and they're more likely to have happy, satisfied marriages. I could go on and on this morning. The, the, the research goes into affection, to intimacy within marriage. It just goes down the, the, the board of what it talks about within marriages. And what you find is the good news if you are a committed follower of Christ that is much more likely an indicator that you are going to have a happy, successful, flourishing marriage. The problem is the word nominal. What does nominal mean? Nominal means in name only. That is, you wear the label, but in reality, you are not what you claim to be. You see, the reality is, and one of the things that, that we have to realize is that you can be a nominal Christian and go to a church. And what, what Wilcox's study shows and there's others that, that Piercy actually references is that nominal commitment can result in abuse of what the church teaches. This is why, for example, when you talk about headship in marriage, and they actually talk about this in the study, if you take the way nominal Christian men apply that, they use it to justify their domineering abuse and their lack of engagement in their families. But when you read about committed Christian men, fathers, it's the opposite. In fact, Wilcox says what you find is that it has no difference if your view is whether there's headship or no headship in marriage. 
that that is no indicator of whether or not you'll have a happy marriage or not. It actually is this. If you have the emotional intelligence to understand you need to show your wife and your children honor and respect. Man, one of the things I want you to hear, ladies and guys, this is the right place to be involved in the body of Christ in a local congregation if you want to have flourishing, happy marriages and a raising of children. Now, be, be clear. Did, did you hear it? This is generalizations. This is not a guarantee, right? It doesn't mean just because you show up and sit down in a pew or in a chair or go to Bible studies, that's what's going to happen. That, that's not what this is saying. What it actually reveals, and this is why the two words are so important, the words devout and nominal. Committed followers of Christ, if you really are embodying men, what Christ taught, and you're really following after him, this leads to flourishing and happy marriages and raising of children. I don't want us to forget that. Because sometimes, honestly, I, I think we get beat down and we think, well, the church is no different than the outside world. That is not true. Statistically, they can show by sociological studies, for committed followers of Christ, commit dads, Husbands that are committed followers of Christ, it makes a real difference. Someone once asked, were all the good men? Well, according to this study, I don't know if they're all here, but a lot of them are sitting in these pews. And that's great news for us. Because what it shows to us is that, that our relationship with Christ makes a real difference. This morning, as we look in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, I want us to see this overarching responsibility of how being committed to Christ and to follow him makes a real difference, particularly dads, in how we father. Now, I want to point us, and I referenced this last week as I was talking to the children, that parents have an overarching responsibility. But I want to point back actually to a sermon I preached on Father's Day of how this is summarized in the book of Malachi. In the book of Malachi 2.15, it reads, Did he not make them, that is, he's talking about husband and wife, with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? That is, when God unites them together, he is seeking what? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. See, dads have a job and a duty to raise godly offspring. Malachi is pretty clear about it. What was the desire of God in uniting together the man and woman to have children is that they would have godly offspring. Now let me be clear, because there's, there's a lot of areas here that I won't spend a great amount of time this morning. I realize, and I'll say as I've said before, there are some people that are currently in seasons of singleness, are called to singleness, and that is what God has, has put into their life. That doesn't somehow mean that you are not following God. I mean, the, the implications that can be read in this are all wrong if you read it this way. What, what Malachi is saying is what is normative in the way God designed. I mean, you just look at it. The majority of people get married, right? Most have children, 
These are still norms that we see, regardless if you're a Christian or non-Christian. This is just something the way that's built in the very design of God. That the design of that uniting together was so that they would be able to produce and have godly offspring. That if you are going to have children, there is an intent and purpose behind that. And it's not just to have well-behaved, morally disciplined children. It's actually greater than that. According to Malachi, which the Spirit inspired, said that the intent was that you'd have godly offspring, that they'd be raised to follow God. Now, that's this overarching context. And, and the way we might say this is not only do, do dads have a job and a duty to raise godly offspring, but here's the deal, dads. We have a job and a duty to raise our children, and this is where we're going to spend a lot of our time this morning, in such a way, in such a way that they would be compelled to follow Christ. Now, notice that statement. It doesn't say that you're going to raise them in such a way that it guarantees they will follow Christ. You can't do that. There is no magic formula that will guarantee your children will follow Christ. I can point to example after example after example of children raised in the same home by godly parents in godly ways, and yes, every parent makes mistakes, okay? If you're in the, if you're in the no mistake line of parenting, it's, over, it's not in here, right? We all make mistakes. But sometimes I, you can have parents that beat themselves up, like, what did I do wrong? And the answer may very well be absolutely nothing. Not in a major way. So what I don't want you to hear this morning as I'm preaching this is that somehow there's a guaranteed way that your children will follow Christ. Now, I might be able to flip it on its head a little bit. You can almost find out of the scripture this morning as you read it, there's almost a guaranteed way to guarantee they won't follow Christ. But even that can be overcome by our God, can't it? But what I want you to see this morning as we read through this is that we, particularly as fathers, have a duty to raise our children in such a way that they would be compelled to follow Christ. They would see our lives, they, they, would, they would interact just in such a way they'd be compelled. And here's really the big idea that I, I want you to walk out of here this morning with. Dads, our words, actions, tone, and temperament Words, actions, tone, and temperament should compel our children to follow Christ, not to provoke them to resent him. Not just our words, not just our actions, but our tone and our temperament. They should compel our children to follow Christ, not to provoke them to resent him. To put it another way, we want our, our, ch- our child or our children to embrace Christ, not to be embittered towards him. Now remember what I, what I opened with as I was talking about how Piercy in her book summarizes this, as well as Dr. Wilcox in his study. Look, the reality is, is that Christian men, and I'm using that very broadly, those who claim to be Christian, there are those that can actually compel their children to follow Christ and there are those that can embitter them against him. And so just because you claim to be Christian doesn't mean that you really are, does it? 
And what, what Paul lays out here in one verse for us, and actually we're going to look at two, Ephesians 6, 4, and then also it's parallel in Colossians 3, is that we are supposed to be doing something to compel our children to embrace Christ and not doing something because it will discourage or embitter them towards him. You know, James Dobson, I think, put it right in his book, parenting isn't for cowards, right? It takes discipline, it takes strength, it takes overcoming of sleep deprivation, right? It overcoming difficult issues to parent well. It's not for the, the faint of heart. But that said, we are called, especially as dads, to parent in such a way that it would compel our children to follow Christ. If you're looking there in Ephesians 6.4, as Tom read, it says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. And as he read the parallel passage in Colossians 3.21, Fathers, do not provoke your children. You notice the word provoke. Now in English, these word, this, this word is identical, do not provoke. But in the underlying Greek, there's actually a little nuance that may help us as we, we understand what he's getting at. In Ephesians 6.4, the word is, and you see it translated there, it means not to provoke to anger. The same word is actually used over in Romans 10.19. In Romans 10.19, it says, but I asked, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, and it quotes, this is a quote from Deuteronomy 32.21 talking about how God responded to a faithless Israel who worshipped a false god. Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will, and there's that same verb, provoke you to anger. I will make you angry. There's an intentionality what God was doing. He, he was going to stir up jealousy in the nation of Israel to make them angry. And this is why in Ephesians, this is, I, there's, this, there's this intentionality. That, you know what, I'm doing something that's going to provoke that child to anger. Don't do it. That's what Paul says. Don't do things that you know will enrage your children. Right? And that's what he says. He says, don't do that. In Colossians 3.21, the word is slightly different. And it really, you see it in, in, the, in the way the verse parallels, that you are not to provoke your children lest it what? Discourage them, right? So sometimes there's a way in which we can parent that there's almost an intentionality, guys, that we have to be careful with, especially those who are given to anger. That can just stir up anger in your children. It can provoke them to be angry. There's other times that we can do things that, that are more nuanced, and really what we're doing is we're setting them up to be exasperated. We provoke them to discouragement, to be exasperated. And this same word is actually used in an in a opposite side, a, a positive side, in 2 Corinthians 9.2. In 2 Corinthians 9.2 says, For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year. And your zeal has stirred up most of them. I'm, I'm telling the people of Macedonia that the, the church at Achaia, they're already ready. 
And so they're ready to give. They're ready to support the ministry. And I'm using that because that stirs up. It encourages them to take part of it as well. But you see how the opposite is used in Colossians. Do not provoke them in such a way that it discourages them. You can stir them up. And we know, and we have to be careful that we do not set up our children in such a way that it would provoke them to anger or provoke them to be exasperated to discouragement, which leads to them being embittered against us. Because then a child is asking, and this can be from the youngest that it's understanding to our teenage children who are about to leave the home. What do I have to do just to make you happy? No one likes to walk on eggshells, including your children. See, what provoke means is this, that we are not to interact with or respond to our children in such a way that it demeans, devalues, or destroys them. Do not interact with your children in such a way, dads, that it would demean, devalue, or destroy them. How quickly sometimes our angry and critical words escape our mouth and they do those things to our children. You know, you ever seen the, the, the father that's trying to live vicariously through the child and God has not gifted that child maybe the way that the dad was gifted? Right? We see this in sports. Right? You have a child that that doesn't excel maybe like their dad does, or maybe he does excel like his dad does, and he's just not as good an athlete as dad was, and dad had some high hope that God would overcome the genetic liabilities and turn this kid into a superstar, and he's yelling at him, why don't you, why don't you kick the ball? Can't you put the ball in the basket? What's your problem? And, and what does that do? That demeans them. It destroys them. It devalues them. Because it says, if you were of worth, you could do these things. Or you have a, a child that, that's struggling in an academic subject because God has not enabled that child in that area. And like, well, it's just easy. You do it this way. And that child is struggling and say, I don't get it. And then some word at, at the exhausted hour says, well, any moron could do this. And what does that tell your child you think of them? You must be stupid. Dads, we need to realize our words are powerful. And they can label our children in such a way that it begins to embitter them against us. And we say we do it in the name of representing Christ. And it will embitter them against our Lord. And Paul says don't do that. Don't Provoke your children to anger. Don't discourage them in who they are. Don't demean them and devalue them and destroy them. Because in doing so, you are actually driving them away from Christ and the gospel. From the very most essential thing in all their life they need. And you become the instrument to drive them away. You know, I think this is a corrective in some ways of Proverbs 13, 24. 
You probably know Proverbs 13, 24, even if you don't know the reference. Spare the rod, spoil the child. Proverbs 13, 24 says, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. And here's the problem that has happened in, in some families. They read this, and they read this as maximize the rod, and that loves, the, loves your son. Let's be honest. Not everything, and in fact, you could argue few things are worth spanking a child. Physical discipline should not be the go-to correction. Now, see what Proverbs is saying. What it is saying is that discipline of a child shows that you love them. And there are times in which you must exercise discipline, correction, because that is loving to a child. Look, Proverbs 13, 24, and by the way, if you look in Ephesians, Colossians, is not, and we'll see this in the second half of Ephesians 4, is not arguing for permissive parenting. This isn't just make the child happy, give them anything they want. That's not what it's arguing for. But it's also not arguing for the authoritarian parent that crushes the child in every mistake, every foolish action, every time they, they, they act rebelliously. It's actually saying there is a loving way to do this. You see, discipline is to be done with wise restraint, not, of, not out of unrestrained anger. Well, when we look at disciplining our children, we need to realize, and this is actually, you hear it in Ephesians 6.4, it should be done in a way that it is not provoking a child towards anger. If a child begins to associate all discipline with they're just angry and mad and, and, and my dad's getting rid of his anger on me, what does that teach them? It teaches them it's okay to be angry because there's a way to get rid of it. And that's not what's supposed to be happening, as we'll see in the second half of 6-4. Back in, in 1987... Josh McDowell wrote a book called How to Help Your Children Say No to Sexual Pressure. And he wrote something that really has become definitive, and I'm sure many of you that have been here for years, I know Pastor Dennis used to use this quite often. In a lot of ways, it was one of the definitive things in raising our own children as Dion and I raised them. He wrote this, if you remember nothing else from this book, Please fix in your mind at least this one truth, and here it is. Rules without relationship equals rebellion. Either active resistance or passive indifference. If you really want to help your child say no to premarital sex, the most important thing you, you do uh, for you to do is not to establish rules, but to build a strong, loving relationship with your child. Rules without relationship breeds rebellion. How many of you heard that over the years? Yeah? You see, you can establish rules. You can create all the structure you want, but you have no relationship. They're merely things that are trying to constrain a child with no relational intent. And we know this. If we see no purpose 
behind the rules, we largely rebel against them and rebel against those who try to establish them. And so you hear this echoed in Ephesians 6.4 in Colossians 3.21. Don't provoke your children to anger, but in Ephesians it does say something else. Or in Colossians, lest you discourage them. It's don't just have rules without relationship because all that results in is rebellion. That's, that's what you're going to get. Or what, does, what looks to us as compliance may actually be rebellion. Remember the story of the prodigal son? The prodigal son, which means the wasteful son, the one who wasted his father's fortune. Right? We think of him, he ran off. A Jewish boy runs off, spends his, he literally tells his dad, he basically says, it'd be better if you were dead, just give me my inheritance now. And then he runs off and wastes it, and he's having to feed swine, and he gets to the point, he's so starving, he's like, I'm going to eat what the pigs eat. And he realizes it'd be better to be a slave in my father's house than to eat with the pigs. But you know, there was another child living in rebellion at the same time. It was the older brother. He just knew how to do it by following the rules. Because you realize what the older brother complained about, right? Younger brother comes up, comes back, and, and what does the father do? He sees him in distance. He runs to him. He embraces him, and he tells his servant, go get the fattened calf, i.e. the one we've been saving up to celebrate really something significant. Go get that one. My son is back. And what does the older brother do? He complains, doesn't he? I've done everything you've asked, and what have you done for me? Do you hear the rebellion? You see, you can create rules, and some children will follow them because that they think that earns something for them. Others will rebel against them because they see no, nothing that they gain from them. But you hear the father's response to both sons. To the, the prodigal son who comes back, he says, my son who was lost has been found. He's returned. Who was dead is now alive. And then he has to tell the older brother, do you not see all that I have is yours? Not because of the rules, but because of what? You are my son. Because of relationship. Rules without relationship breeds rebellion. Dads, we've got to be careful. We don't just create rules for our own convenience, our own ease but there's relational purpose behind them. Rules aren't bad. In fact, boundaries are great, right? When my children were young, guess what they had to do while we walked beside a busy road? They had to hold my hand. And guess what happened if they didn't? Oh, then guess what? Dad held their arm, right? Forget the hand. I'm going to grab you by the wrist. Why? Not because I want to punish you, because I want to do what? Protect you. That happens as they get older. There's reasons why we, we had boundaries in our home, that we worked with our children as they became older, and they can make bigger mistakes in life. But I can't walk around and hold them by their wrist. But if I explain to them why I'm doing this, why mom and I said these are the boundaries, it helps them see I'm not doing this because I want to make your life difficult and I want to steal your joy. It's because I love you so deeply, I don't want you to be destroyed. 
Now, again, the reality is, as our children, you know, our children grow, we can't control the human heart. But we can say and compel them, follow Christ, for this is the greatest flourishing. Now, one of the things we learn from this is, is we don't want to be a seagull parent. You know what a seagull parent is? Dads, you don't want to be a seagull dad. Seagulls, you know what they do, right? They just fly above you and take a dump on you. That's a pretty vivid picture, isn't it? Kim Blanchard actually uses this illustration in his book, Leadership and the One-Minute Manager. He says there's a lot of managers who are seagull managers. They just show up when they hear there's a problem, they take a dump on you, and they fly away. You know how many dads do that? Right? I remember when, I was, when, when our youngest, uh, Braden, was born, I was traveling a lot. I traveled generally five to six days a week. I usually left on Sunday evenings, and I'd get home on Saturday nights, or excuse me, Friday nights, and then I'd fly out again. And he was really young. So I'm pretty sure in his little brain, he kept thinking, who's the guy that shows up on the weekend? Because that's all I was, you know. i come in Friday night, I was there Saturday, Sunday morning, and I was gone usually by Sunday afternoon or evening. And this is how it was when he was young. And, and Dion and I understood this. We'd made a commitment in our marriage that it wouldn't last, and it was a, a brief season for us, thankfully. But it was interesting, because I, I can only imagine his little brain, he, as I would try to correct and discipline him, he was going, who are you? That's, that's what he was thinking. Like, I don't understand why. I remember one moment, I, I think I've shared this before, I actually, I corrected Braden, and, and I said, hey, you know, you're going to do this, yes, sir, or no, sir. And it applied to all the children. You just say, yes, sir. You know, don't, don't say, no, sir. No one wants to know what happens then, right? And Braden, being the introspective kid he was, goes, no, sir. <laughs> Dion kind of chuckled at me and kind of said, what are you going to do now? <laughs> I'm going to get on an airplane. It leaves at 4 o'clock. See you. No, um, the reality was is that I didn't have that relationship, right? And I realized this. And I'll, I'll tell you, and I, I'm, just, I'm going to share a little bit of my own life. Went through as I, got, as, as I graduated with my master's degree. My, my original life plan, by the way, I don't know if you guys know this. I'll tell you my original life plan is so easy. I graduated from high school, I was going to get out of college, get my master's degree, my PhD, then I was going to start teaching at a university or a seminary, uh, and then I was going to get married. It's not exactly the order it happened in. What happened is, I fell in love with a young woman, and we had children, and guess what? I got to this point, I had to make a decision. Was I going to pursue a PhD or not? And I remember, and I, and I think I've shared this before as I reflected back, I remember the story of a man at a Promise Keeper conference in which he shared that his daughters drew a picture and he wasn't in it because he was in the library. And that moment is a moment where I said, you know what, I want to raise my children. I don't want to watch them grow up. Which is my way of saying I want to have a relationship with my kids, not just be the, the, the dad that shows up on occasion. Guys, I'm just telling you what Ephesians 4 warns us about is don't be the seagull dad. Don't just show up to do the discipline. You see, what we need to realize is when you look at this, it's telling us we need to be more proactive in our parenting so we can be less reactive in our parenting. Right? Be more proactive in your parenting so that you don't have to be so reactive in your parenting. When your children understand the whys, when they understand the desires of your heart, what's trying to be accomplished in what you're seeking. And sometimes they won't always agree with it, right? I mean, 
this doesn't mean that your children will never be angry at you. That's not what it says, right? It doesn't say, fathers, parent your children in such a way they'll never get mad, right? That's not what it says. It actually says, parent in such a way that you don't provoke them to anger, right? That you don't stir it up in their life. But instead, parent them in such a way that they love Christ. Notice how it talks about in Ephesians 6, 4 in the second half. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It doesn't say just don't do this. It says do this instead. It said do this. That bring them up is the word nourish. What does that tell us? It's like you're raising a young plant. You can't just plant and prune it. You also must what? Nourish it. You have to nourish that plant. And the way I would describe this is when you look at how the Bible talks about this, it has to do with our tone, our temper or temperament, and our talk. In Ephesians 4.29, Paul wrote, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Isn't that interesting? We get to, it's almost like we get to Ephesians 6. Oh, I forgot about Ephesians 4. But in Ephesians 4, this applies as much to our parenting as it does to our other relationships. Parent in such a way, guys, that it's not corrupting talk, but it's only such that it's good for building up, as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Or maybe we need to be reminded of Proverbs 15.1 that a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up. Anger. You realize that's true, guys, in the way we parent. Harsh words as a father can actually stir up anger in our children. And our call is not to do that. You, you don't want to criticize and admonish and attack and discipline in such a way that your harsh words embitter your child. But you want to do what it says there in the second part of the verse. To nourish them. That's, that's the underlying idea. Nourish them in the admonition and discipline of the Lord. Notice what it says. Admonition or instruction, right? Direction giving, that's the idea. And discipline, right? Go here, don't go there. Stay on this path. Don't go off on this path. See, discipline isn't just about make my life easy. It's literally about, no, you need to be following the path of God. And sometimes that's, and not only sometimes, probably more often than not, that's not the grab them by the arm and yank them out of the street action. That, that, it's needed sometimes, isn't it? But more often than not, it's the hold their hand, metaphorically speaking, and walk with them so they know where to go. See, that doesn't change from the time when they're little to the time they're adults. You still are looking to guide them, what? In the admonition or instruction and discipline, not of Tom Wilson, not of John Smith, fill in the blank, but of the Lord. 
that you're looking to guide them in the ways in the path of Christ. So I just remind us, dads, we have a job and a duty, and that is to raise godly offspring. That's your overarching goal. And very specifically, I say today what Paul has written through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is that our words and actions, our tone and temperament, should compel our children to follow Christ. Father, I thank you for the words of of Paul inspired by the Holy Spirit to help us, particularly as, as fathers, to be intentional in the way in which we parent our children. Father, I'm encouraged that that men that embrace and follow after Christ earnestly and seriously with their lives, that, Father, we can see it makes a difference in the way they parent, in the way they raise their children. God, I pray that we as, as fathers would be committed to that, for those of us that have children that we are still rearing. Father, for, for those that um, walk with adult children, God, that you would give them patience and a wisdom on how to guide their children, even in the adult years. Father, I, I pray, would you work in us so that we would be godly men that seek wholeheartedly after you, not not nominal, not name only, but Father devout, committed to following Christ for your glory. And Father, not merely for our good, but for our children's good. God, for those that, that don't have children now, and maybe it's on the horizon for them, God, would you even prepare their hearts now to be godly fathers. For those that, that walk now without children, and maybe, Father, that's what you've called them to, that they would see that there is wisdom, that even in their lives, they can act as spiritual fathers to those that don't know Christ. Father, they can be spiritual fathers to those that do know Christ, and God, that they too can walk in godly ways, so as not to provoke those to anger, the Father to walk in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. Help us today, Father, that we be a godly people that brings glory to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray and by the Holy Spirit. Amen.